We're coming now into the Hall of Currency and Coins. What's that? It's from the Dark Ages, before the rise of our good and kind robot overlords. People gave it to other people to get things. They called it cash. You would see a thing that you wanted and, and give somebody some of this cash, and they would give you the thing and a smaller amount of cash, representing the difference between... I don't understand. I get everything I want from our robot overlords. It's supplied through the nutrition, hydration, and sedation nozzles on my neck. Our robot overlords are so kind. Um, yes. They are so kind. This cash looks disgusting. Did people touch it and spread germs and feces and skin oil to each other? Well, sort of. Come over here for a second. Look, I belong to a secret group that meets underground in the tunnels below the Human Life Force Processing Center. We practice the old ways. We buy and sell things with cash. The other day, somebody gave me a quarter. A quarter of what? Shh. You can join us. It's great. It's true independence. You don't want to go through life enslaved to these robot overlords. They don't use cash. They just drain small amounts of your life force to power their system. But King Droid Primus tells us this offering of human bioenergy is sacred and necessary. Right. Yes, of course it is. I don't know what got into me there. You can have your thought apparatus scanned and readjusted at any Northrop Grumman cyberpost. I will. I will totally do that. Well, anyway, enough with this germy old money. The next room shows the history of public radio which was eliminated in 2027 under the Holy Empress Ivanka. You can hear one of their bumbling and disloyal presenters by pressing that button. This one? Mm-hmm, yeah, I believe it's a show about money hosted by a man who appears in no official historical records. Colin McEnroe. Yes, it is me uh, from the distant past uh, doing a show about cash and our relationship to cash. Let me just quickly say, I will not belabor this as we go on today, but it's worth noting, uh, as some of you know, if you listen to us regularly, we, um, as often as we can, offer our programming in a really novel context, something, a format that basically we sort of feel that we've developed. It is programming that is offered to the deaf community, and we're doing it today. It's on Facebook Live. You go to the Colin McEnroe Show page uh, on Facebook, and you'll see a video feed. You'll see uh, our wonderful interpreters, uh, Mary Sue and Sarah, who are in the studio with me right now. They'll be using American Sign Language to interpret everything that gets said on the show today uh, for a deaf audience. So, um, But our goal is just to do regular shows so so that they can hear what a show, they can understand, they can know what a show is like. So I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Instead, I'm going to talk about what the show is about. So if you go on YouTube and type in just a few keywords, um, Dave Ramsey inspired, that'll probably do it. You'll get all these videos of people, most of them are women, and, and they're making these do-it-yourself videos where they're showing you how they're using the concepts introduced by this guy, Dave Ramsey, who's a talk show host and kind of a uh, financial guru of a very particular type. And you'll see what they're doing. They, what they do is they have envelopes or these com complex planners, these big kind of folders with lots of little pockets. And they, you'll watch them as they stuff cash into these pockets. And, and Dave Ramsey's whole idea is that you should use cash as much as possible because that allows you to keep track uh, of your spending better. You feel it more keenly. He's got a whole bunch of reasons why uh, you should use cash. But anyway, I was watching these videos today. I'm fascinated. These people have kind of adopted this idea. And you, you just see them relating to cash. Now, so that's one undercurrent or one tide in our society. Another tide is 
the move towards a cashless society. Um, Sweden is one of the countries that leads the way. I believe last year, barely 2% of the purchases made in Sweden were made with cash. Almost everything is used is done cashlessly. There are bank branches. In fact, I think 900 of the 1,600 bank branches in Sweden don't have cash. There's no cash at the bank. Think about that. Um, however, I think one of the things we're going to learn is that the world isn't going to go one way or the other. You know, there, it's not going to go all Sweden. It's not going to go all Dave Ramsey. Uh, we've got a lot of very ingrained habits that we probably are not going to change that um, easily. We're going to begin our conversations with Kabir Segal, uh, Segal uh, produ- composer, producer, investment banker, financial executive, and author of Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. So, uh, Kabir Segal, first of all, Welcome to our show and to our conversation. Thank you. I loved your introduction, sci-fi introduction as well. (laughs) Those robot overlords, they're so terrible. But, um, okay, so I'm going to begin by having you tell a story. And the story takes place in Jakarta. It takes place with you in a taxi cab. And I'll let you pick it up from there. Sure. So I used to work at J.P. Morgan in emerging market finance. So my job was to travel around the world and find investment opportunities uh, to sell to U.S.-based investors. So one of these trips took me to Indonesia in Jakarta. And Jakarta is just notorious for some of the worst traffic in the world. And people just sit in lines, sometimes two to three hours, just to get across town. And I was running late to a meeting, so I jumped in a taxi from my hotel, and we darted out into uh, into the Jakarta traffic and just stood there. But he started, the taxi driver started approaching uh, this lady who was standing outside the taxi, and she was holding her baby, and she had her hand out. And it looked like she was like trying to hail a ride or, or she was begging for money or something. But what ended up happening is she just opened the door to the car and got in without any discussion, without any consent from me, you know, the passenger of the car. And we started moving, and I was like, what is going on? Why is there this person, this third party in the car? I have no understanding what's going on. And... Eventually, it became clear the taxi driver took a left turn and he went on to the carpool lane. And so I started realizing that this was an implicit transaction that, you know, we were in this car, the taxi driver, the baby, uh, the woman, and me, and she was letting us get into the carpool lane. And if you, I started thinking about it for my book, and I was like, well, look, we were all in the same vehicle, we were all headed in the same direction, and we were all involved in a transaction. You know, I was... Uh, paying money to find an investment opportunity. The taxi driver was getting money to take me on a ride. And the woman and her baby was making a little bit less money, but she was getting a, going across town and because she was allowing us to use the carpool lane. And so if you, when you start looking at the relationship of money, it brought three strangers into a common vehicle and a common purpose. And it forged, you could argue, a new relationship with each other. And this is what money does. It brings people together. It can divide people. But it plays such a powerful force on our lives. And, and it really paves the road for us for all. I mean, I'm going to get very big here, but it paves the road for all of humanity, I think. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, the, the counterpoint to this, and our, our guest in the final segment is going to talk about this, is that um, for good or ill, 
a lot of uh, transactions that have to be, must be made in cash only, uh, are, are done so because they don't represent a sanctioned by the state activity. Now, this, the thing that you're describing, is a very minor thing that pretty much works out for everybody. Um, uh, you could probably figure out who the victim is. I guess the victim is the person who doesn't know this system and can't get in to the, to the fast lane. But basically, this works out for everybody. Uh, towards the end of the show, one of our guests will say, yeah, but cash is, I mean, one of the reasons people use cash is because they're, they're drug traffickers or they're selling weapons that they shouldn't be selling to bad people who shouldn't be buying them, that, that the world of cash, uh, the world of that the has to be cash, uh, is often a world of things that somebody doesn't want the government to know about. But Kabir, you travel all over the world. Sometimes it's good that the government doesn't know what you're doing. <laughs> Probably. And in this case, you know, Uber created an app in Indonesia and they formalized that system of a third party can jump into the into the taxi with you and then they subsequently got rid of it. So uh, it's, it's interesting how these how people study different cultures and they find what are the, the uh, exchanges that are happening and then they try to formalize it to take money, to take money on that. And so in some ways, some ways, these tech companies like Uber and even Lyft are, are uh, bringing uh, silent practices to light and how we use money. Um, the other thing that you notice as you travel around the world is that money looks differently and has uh, different people on it. You know, in, in our nation, I mean, we just added Harriet Tubman after a long debate, but uh, she certainly wasn't typical of what we put on our money. It's mostly presidents and, and Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and as you go around the world, I have like a wrinkled old Irish punt, uh, a 10-punt uh, note that has James Joyce on it because the Irish – you know, back in those days, they didn't have any money anyway, uh, but they had great poets and they had great writers and they had James Joyce. And so you put them on your money. I'm sure you've noticed that, too, that somehow or other a society documents itself and its attitudes with its cash. That's right. Um, I think money is really a canvas of society. And because a lot of folks, even when you look at the early like 19th century, um, you know, the only type of art that people interacted with was coins. You know, it was numismatics. It was the, the, the portraits and the medals, and people could touch these coins. And you know, not everyone could go to the local museum and see portraits. Mm. So American coins were actually, um, in the words of Teddy Roosevelt, they were hideous atrociousness. They were very ugly because they looked like Greek and Roman coins. There was nothing really American about the coins. So he you know, commissioned his friend, um, Anthony St. Gaudens, a, sculpt, a sculpture and medalist. And he started creating these beautiful uh, coins that had uh, incredible like relief on it. So if you were to put your finger over it, you would feel the edges. And uh, the, the bankers didn't like it because you can roll the coins very easily. So eventually the coins, these were the, uh, the double, uh, double eagle coins that came out in 1907. And then uh, these double eagles came out, but then the bankers said, nope, we don't want to have it so, um, so with so much relief. So then they flattened the coins. And the coins, they circulated, and some of the coins became very valuable. In fact, one of the double eagle coins that came from 1907 traded for, I think, over $4 million in a recent auction um, not too long ago. So it just shows you that, like, the, the, the messages on the coins really have deeper meaning and value to, into a society. And I think perhaps in my travels around the world, the most interesting coin I came across was the... Um, counter-stamped coins of the Philippines. And I'll just tell you quickly about it. The Philippines in the 1850s was a colony, in, uh, <clears throat> a Spanish colony. 
and they would get the the coins would would come from the Americas, from Peru and Lima, because that's where the precious metals were. And these coins would, would then circulate. Spain would take these coins and circulate them in the Philippines. Well, around the 1850s, a lot of these colonies were in open revolt, and they would print these revolutionary slogans on their coins. So you would have a peso, you know, issued in in Peru or Mexico with a sign, you know, with a with a message liberty or independence. And then Spain would take these coins, they would then counterstamp over the coins, like the crown of Spain, and then issue them in uh, Manila in the Philippines because they still needed the precious metals. And then the Filipinos would then put their own stamp to make it, you know, a coin that could function in this particular town. So one coin would have three or four different stamps, and it would just show you how civilizations are colliding. And so these counterstamp coins were really a way of saying who's in charge and what symbol rep- is going to represent us. And so counterstamp coins is probably the one of one of the more unique coins you'll come across in the study of numismatics. So. Uh, you know, it's one thing to talk about getting rid of cash. It's another thing to do it. And maybe they can do it in Sweden. But, uh, you know, looking at your work, reading your work and and, and stuff that I've read my whole life, I, I wonder about that. We have a very visceral and imprinted and ingrained relationship with cash. Freud, of course, argues that it's it's – uh, the ultimate substitute system for excrement, you know, at the beginning of our lives, we get rewarded for uh, putting feces where we're supposed to put them, or we, we retain them, we do all kinds of things. Then it gets too stinky, we switch to mud, we switch to sand, but eventually we wind up with this dehydrated and deodorized version of feces, it's money. Now, whether you buy that argument or not, it, it is, certainly is true um, that there is a pretty visceral relationship across cultures to money as opposed to its, its digital equivalent. And, and I'm assuming that this has something to do with maybe even our evolution as human societies, Kabir. It does. In fact, when you use money um, or something that symbolizes money, it triggers a part of the brain that is deeply evolutionary. I mean, people say it's part of the limbic system of the brain. Um, there's a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, the reward center of the brain, gets triggered. And so when you, um, when you spend money, when you spend cash, uh, and you feel like you're making a bad investment decision or bad purchase, you know, you may feel that in your gut. You know, when you make something, make, make a poor decision, you feel it, you can almost taste it. And there's a reason for this, because the part of the brain that's involved with anxiety or fear is called the anterior insula. And there's something called spindle cells that are in the anterior insula, and you have a few of these spindle cells in your digestive tract, in your stomach. And so when you make a poor investment decision uh, and you, you buy something you feel like maybe you shouldn't have, you can it, it triggers the anterior insula, and you feel it within your digestive system. You, you, you can taste it almost. And it goes to show you that um, you know money almost has, there's a physiological mechanism happening when you spend money, and you often don't think about it. And so... You know, there's there's all kinds of, of surveys that show when you use a credit card instead of cash, there's not a much as much activation in your anterior insula, and so it just shows you that credit card can almost dull your pain, the physical pain that you may feel from using cash. So Dave Ramsey, the, the gentleman you mentioned at the top of the show, he's right in that if you use cash, you can you can feel it more, you can see it more, um, and there's definitely neurological reasons and biological reasons that that make it so. So um, another thing that's inextricably wound up with money and cash to a certain degree 
is religion. Um, I go to church every Sunday. Um, the offering basket uh, comes around, uh, and there's another place where I can throw a little money in for our, our latest outside charitable cause. Um, and it's it, you know it's it, no matter how digital we get, no matter how how card swipey and cashless we get, I'm guessing offering baskets are going to go around in churches, and people are going to put in them whatever they they put in them, and and religious. Texts, primary religious texts, are full of lessons and, and advice uh, about how to deal with money and how to neither a borrower nor a lender be or whatever. Um, you know, and and so what's that about? I mean, it seems as though the de- development of currency and the development of religion uh, occasionally go hand in hand. Yes, yeah, scholars have looked at this and they say, you know, look at the three places that coins were invented. Um, you know, ancient Greece around the 5th century BC, uh, ancient China around the same time, and also in India around the same time. And if you look about what happens 100 or 150 years after money or coins become sort of the coin of the realm, uh, you have the invention of or the creation of a lot of organized religions. So in Germany, uh, excuse me, in Greece, you had Pythagoras, who was a religious leader at the time. Um, and in India, you had Buddha. You know, in in China, you had Confucius, and a lot they were all sort of preaching a similar uh, value set, which was asceticism, which was you know uh, the embracing a philosophy that was sort of against money. And so, when you had coins, coins sort of democratized money and spending. You could go to the marketplace and you could uh, make money for yourself. You could trade on yourself. And in some ways, the marketplace brought the sort of I don't want to call it capitalist, but bought this buying and selling behavior. And you know, if you look at early religions, like even Islam and, and Christianity, there's so much in the scriptures about what to do with money, how to spend it. In fact, I think eight of the ten uh, parables that Jesus mentions in the book of Matthew are about what to do with money or how to spend money or what to do with wealth. I mean, Jesus talks about money uh, so frequently uh, it almost makes you feel uncomfortable. And it's like a test of character. And like, you know, it's clear what he says on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, store up your treasures in, in, in heaven and not on earth. But the one line that theologians have been trying to work out for millennia is this one line. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great that darkness. And like, what is he trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount? Because he's just talking about money. And then he says this. And and theologians believe he's talking about greed. Mm -hmm. Greed. And, you know, so evolutionary, yeah, it's it's important to be greedy to get the resources you need to survive. But, you know, greed is very blinding. It darkens the body. You cannot see it in yourself. You see it in someone else. There's a famous preacher here in New York, and he says, look, in the 25 years I've been hearing confessionals, no one has ever come up to me and said, Father, please forgive me, I am too greedy. And so in that way, you see the scriptures are full of this, what to do with money, what, how to think about greed. And money really, I say, can determine the fate of your soul depending on how you use it. 
Yeah, I would argue that Jesus is pretty clear that worldly treasures are not the thing. And I mean, he's pretty redistributive in a lot of what he says. But churches wrestle with this all the time because ultimately they're full of members who maybe aren't living so immediately uh, to those pre- uh, according to those precepts as Jesus. So what you have are these days preachers who develop some, and we've had them for a while, who develop some other way of uh, thinking about money. The most famous one these days is named Joel Osteen. Uh, He's out of Houston. Here's a little bit of him. Are you a prosperity uh, minister? No, I don't like that term. To me, when somebody said, are you a prosperity minister, it's just what you said. It's somebody that talks about money all the time. But Mm. if I go back to say prosperity to me, it's accomplishing your dreams. It's having money to pay your bills. It's, it's being blessed so you can be a blessing. So I, I am of the model that I'm not. I think there's a group that says, well, to be a Christian, to be a real believer, you've got to be poor. You've got to be humble. You gotta, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that. I think, you know, you look in the Old Testament, uh, Christianity was started with Abraham, and it says he was the wealthiest man there. So I don't think anything's wrong with that. I think God wants you to succeed and excel. I think Does God want us to be rich, though? Well, I think he wants you to be rich in your spirit. I mean, with money. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right. Uh, I should say parenthetically that in 2014, uh, Joel Osteen's church was hit by thieves who who took the weekend's uh, take of cash and checks, uh, which amounted to $600,000. So there was an awful lot of – and so that's like churches. There's a lot of cash going on. And I didn't have to search very hard today to find a kind of fringy group, uh, fringy religious or church group uh, that believes that uh, the cashless society is – part of the Antichrist predictions in Book of Revelations, uh, where there's the whole idea you get the mark on your right hand and on your forehead, quote, and that no man might buy or sell, save that he had the mark uh, or the name of the beast or the number of his name, So, which apparently turns out to be capital one. But um, it's just interesting that, that even that prophecy jumps right into the question of buying and selling. And I, I'm assu- assuming what we're really talking about um, uh, right now, Kabir, is our, our, our civilization-long love-hate approach avoidance with money. At some level, we know that it's sort of dirty. It really is connected to feces. It's connected to the devil in a lot of folktales and stuff like that. On the other hand, it's also very connected to happiness. Right. Well, I should say just on this point, I don't want to let it let the go the, let go of this thread that you know Jesus um, did say sell everything, renounce everything completely. Mm-hmm. Like when he's giving the instruction to the rich man, he says it's more difficult for a rich man to go to heaven essentially, or to pass through the the needle uh, into the gates of heaven uh, than for a poor man. So it is actually more difficult. And he's not saying don't give a little away, give everything away. Mm-hmm. And the 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 passage you just the clip you had of uh, uh, Joel Olstein. It's that prosperity gospel is, I think, is based on a misreading of the prayer of Jabez, which is, you know, to the prayer of Jabez was to enlarge our, to enlarge our kingdom, to enlarge our territory, which is what the Israelis were asking for after they had been persecuted. So in some ways, like, there, there's no getting around the fact that the religious leaders from, from, you know, the Hindu scriptures to Islam to Judaism, they're all talking about complete renunciation of this this capital quest and getting back to your this question you just asked me we're we're torn in two ways because evolutionary we're wired to you know more is better more is better we have genetic coding and i can talk about that about there's actually genes that make us spend in a certain way and some of us are more genetically predisposed to be better with money actually yet at the same time we're uh, we're pulled with this this sort of spiritual paradox which is less is more that 
you know, once you make over, they say, $75,000, according to Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, once you make over about $75,000 annual income in America, uh, you don't get materially much happier after that because your, your needs are generally met. And, you know, happiness, there's kind of like this U-curve with money that the more money you make, the millions and millions of dollars you make, you're not materially, uh, your life is in, have more satisfaction. So there seems to be a sweet spot of realizing that you have enough to get by, you have enough to pay the medical bills, but um, too much uh, is not a good thing uh, of, of anything, especially money. All right. We're going to grab a break here. Uh, we're going to add another voice to the conversation uh, because, yeah, there's a sweet spot, but do you want that sweet spot in cash or credit? Welcome back to our show about cash, uh, and uh, you can also enjoy it uh, if you understand American Sign Language by going to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, where we're doing a thing that we call Radio for the Deaf. It's a uh, version of radio that we offer to the deaf community whenever we can, uh, using wonderful interpreters uh, that I have in studio with me right now, who are translating the whole show into American Sign Language. Um, Our guests uh, right now are Kabir Segal, author of Coin, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History, has shaped us. He's in the NPR studios in New York City. Joining us also is Scott Rick, Associate Professor of Marketing at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Before I pull Scott into the conversation, you know, we keep talking about this guy, Dave Ramsey. I'm going to play a little clip of him. He's speaking at a church. He speaks at churches a lot. Um, The noise you hear uh, in the background will be him with an enormous pair of scissors actually cutting up real credit cards. MasterCard. (laughs) Capital One. What's in your wallet? Money. (laughs) You're weird, Dave. You're right. And I'm not broke anymore either. I decided I'm living like this. I hadn't had a credit card in 30 years. You don't have a credit card? I don't have a credit card. That's my wallet. It's got green president's faces. Got four pieces of plastic in here, two debit cards, one on my business, one on my personal account, which will do everything your stupid credit card will do. I travel more than any two of you put together. Shut up. It works, okay? (laughs) Dave, you're not getting airline miles. Yeah, I've met a lot of millionaires, and none of them said, Dave, you know, I made it all on my airline miles. I hadn't heard that one, so... So Scott Rick, I mean, Dave Ramsey is actually kind of a weird guy, and some of his attitudes about other stuff uh, would probably be unpalatable to our audience. But does he have a point about this? I mean, his fundamental argument is you don't know, you don't experience uh, maybe even the pain of parting with your money if you don't part with actual cash. Yeah, um, certainly I agree. First of all, on the Ramsey point, he's not a fan of some of my work, but um, yeah, there is uh, a lot of research to suggest that um, it is less painful uh, to spend with credit than with cash, and I think there are many reasons for that. It's uh, You get less feedback. You're, when you spend money out of your wallet, your wallet uh, is different than before you spend, as opposed to a card which you, which you swipe and you get the exact same card back. Um, so it's a much less tangible way of paying for something. Um, it's and obviously there's the kind of the fact that the payment is delayed and um, it's not clear when you'll have to pay it. You might be able to just chip away at it for a little while. So I think there are lots of reasons why cash is more painful at the moment of payment and, and thus a little more restrictive. 
Is it also the case, I mean, well, uh, well, it's almost not even a question. I know it's the case that we're also living in a world of unseen fees and interest charges too. I mean, I can make the minimum payment on my Capital One card, but I don't even know what what the interest rate has floated up to right now, but it's going to be charged to that. There are all kinds of little fees that pop up in all kinds of places that it's like whack-a-mole. I mean, and so in a way, I assume the financial services sector would really like us to live there and pay a bunch of fees. Yeah, certainly um, fees are a big source of revenue for them. And a lot of consumers are over-optimistic about their ability to avoid these fees, thinking this kind of thing won't happen to me, late payment charges and and things like that. Um, So it's, yeah, that's another benefit of cash that you kind of avoid these. um, If you can't spend, you can't spend. You just have to wait. Um, but yeah, the, the card companies are, are um, certainly benefiting from these fees quite frequently. The other thing that's happening, let me bring uh, Kabir back into this. So I went to the movie uh, theater the other night, and as I approached the place where the cash registers were, this person came running towards me and said, asking if I was going to pay by a card. She moved me over to this kiosk. Uh, and sort of the way they do at the airport, you know, they, she kind of walked me through which buttons to push and how I could order specific seats and everything. But it, it, one of the things that it struck me is that I'm sure movie theaters would like Kabir to divorce you a little bit from how much you're paying to go see the movie and also ultimately how much you're paying you know, for 12 cents worth of popcorn, um, that, that that's another thing, that if you can get the cash out of people's hands, you can maybe get them to think a little bit less about how much things really cost. Sure. It's also a trade-off, though, because with the kiosk, you're not taking on the labor cost of paying the, the, the cashier or the, or the clerk. And you're seeing the, the move to credit or frictionless payments is sort of the counterpoint in this whole discussion that it's uh, merchants are incentivized to use credit because they lower their own costs in some cases, um, the bigger merchants, that is. And also the speed. If you look at millennials uh, who, are, who are shopping these days, a lot of them will not, uh, they don't, they're not carrying cash. They will leave stores because it's too inconvenient to make a purchase. And you're starting to see there's all the surveys that show that, you know, while credit might has, have a few more fees, you're going to end up losing customers if you don't take credit cards. And, you know, I should say for all the demonization of credit cards, it really gets back to this idea of debt, uh, which is so f- fundamental to the idea of money that, you know, the credit card was used to democratize. Uh, paying and affording things, you can bring forward your earning power. You, I mean, we we don't complain when you know, you go into a thirty-year mortgage and you go into debt to buy something that you really need. It's okay to use your credit card and to fall into debt if you really need something. So, you know, the credit card was used as this democratizing instrument, and now it, almost every conversation about credit cards seems to be that you know it's this onerous thing that we can't trust people with. You know, Scott, it seems as though what's happening also, there's a kind of reprogramming of us. Um, you know, we were programmed for thousands of years to hand over some money and get something back. Now we hand over our credit card, we get our credit card back. Maybe we also get something else, something material, if that's what we've bought. But but it, it's a different kind of interaction. And it seems as though, I mean, you cite some research where we've even been reprogrammed to react a certain way to the logos of credit cards. Tell us about that. Yeah, so... Um Part of the uh, reasoning behind people spending more with credit than with cash is that it, it reduces the pain. It's less visual. People don't remember how much they spent. You can ask someone in, in line after they just spent money with credit cards. They don't remember how much they spent. Um, but another reason is that it's, there's some evidence that 
just exposure to credit card stimuli, logos, is kind of like smelling fresh cookies. It, it um, stimulates some craving. People spend more with cash when they've been exposed to credit card logos. It just makes them more kind of appetitive. Um, so that's part of the, the conditioning. Um, and I think part of the um, process as well with credit is uh, when someone first starts using credit, it might not have um, immediate effects on their willingness to spend. But if you train them over time not to associate pain with spending, um, then you can kind of condition people into thinking spending is kind of a, a painless thing. Um, obviously, spending, money, and status uh, are big uh, ritual things in our society. Um, and I am old enough to remember guys who would pull out their big money clip and count their money in front of you. But Scott, it seems as though the high-status credit card has kind of taken that place. Yeah, and and certainly um, credit card companies are tap into our desire for status and wanting to get to that next level, the platinum and the diamond and the sapphire. And, and there are videos on YouTube of people kind of unboxing their high-end kind of heavy um, mineral credit cards and, and just kind of being amazed at it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because um, spending with credit is, is to, to my mind, not a great signal of your actual um, financial status. It's, it's not clear if you really do have the money to spend. Um, we don't know when you're paying it off as opposed to cash where it's, it is a clearer signal. But um, certainly the, the desire for status um, contributes to overspending with, with credit. Um, Kabir, we only have uh, 60 seconds left, so uh, be concise. But um, 10 years from now, if we call you up and book you for this show again, will we, ha- will we be having the same conversation? Is cashlessness going to gain a lot of ground, or is there always going to be cash? We'll be having a similar conversation because 85% of transactions in the world are still based in cash. A lot of societies like China and India are very cash-based societies. So, yeah, there's this current of more digital payments, more electronic payments, that'll happen. But it's going to be very tough for um, the developing world, which is most of the world's population, to be to move to a cashless society. All right. Uh, this has been great. We have one more segment to go, but we want to uh, thank the guests uh, on this segment, uh, Kabir Segal. His book is Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us, uh, and Scott Rick, Associate Professor of Marketing at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. Uh, I have just enough time to tell you that, yeah, if you'd like to see what we're doing on Facebook Live, go to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. You can see our wonderful interpreters, Mary Sue and Sarah, who are doing this show in American Sign Language language for a different audience. Today's show is produced by Josh Nalea, who appears on the two-pound note of a crown dependency of Guernsey, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish has a wallet stuffed with cash, and our intern is Hazel Cologne. The people who made today's radio for the deaf possible are Katie Talarski, Heather Brandon, Tucker Ives, Ryan Karen King, Joe Koss, Frankie Graziano, and Sam Hockaday. Special thanks to American School for the Deaf and Source Interpreting of West Hartford, Connecticut. The part of Bill Curry was played by Scrooge McDuck. And now, back to Colin. We're going to um, end this show today with a conversation about, well, what uh, this author calls the curse of cash. Uh, Joining us now is Kenneth Rogoff, the Thomas D. Cabot Professor of Public Policy and Professor of Economics at Harvard University, and, as I said, author of The Curse of Cash. So, Ken Rogoff, let's begin with 
Well, you know, a, a famous singer once said it's all about the Benjamins. Um, <laughs> and uh, so there are supposedly, I guess, $3,400 uh, bills for uh, every man, woman, and child in America. I don't have any of them right now. Um, who has my $100 bills? We actually have no idea. Then the government has no idea. It's a good guess that the vast bulk of them are held in what we call the underground economy, which you know can include crime, but it also includes people engaged in legal activities or almost legal activities where they're trying to avoid taxes. Right. So it's not unusual. I mean, I certainly have had the experience of a person showing up to buy a used car from me with cash. And I don't, you know, I mean, it put me in the position of having to find out what to do with $3,600 worth of cash. Uh, or it wasn't a very good car, obviously. But I mean, that that's not that unusual. And obviously, maybe the person who's using cash that way uh, is doing it for a certain reason. Maybe he expects me to also avoid taxes in a certain way or underreport the cost of things. So, I mean, is there some way of estimating what the impact of that is, either on our tax revenue stream or the economy overall? Well, the Internal Revenue Service has done a lot of work on this, and so countries around the world. And in the case of the United States, about 15% of taxes are never paid. That's even after all the auditing and everything. And a very significant part of that in cash-intensive businesses. And in countries like France and Germany, it's almost twice as much as a percentage of taxes owed. We're talking about $500 billion a year in taxes that aren't paid just at the federal level, and there's a significant further amount at state and local. And of course, uh, getting rid of 50 and $100 bills, which is really what I'm talking about, is hardly going to solve the problem of tax evasion. But there's a lot of evidence that it might cut it back to 5 or 10% by making it more difficult to do deals, more difficult to store money. And it wouldn't cost hardly anything to do. So I raised the question of why don't we do it? And and talk about what other countries have done. I mean, there are places now where this exact reduction, it's not going towards a cashless society. It's going towards a less cash or lower denomination society. I appreciate your saying that because a lot of polemic response I get is people say, oh, this is going to be Orwellian, the government's going to know everything I do, and yet, as you say, most people aren't really using $100 bills and $50 bills, so it wouldn't affect them. Other countries like the Nordic countries are just, you know, going full speed towards this. In fact, in Sweden, more than half of banks don't carry cash at all. No ATM machines, nothing pretty much same in Denmark and uh, Norway. And, you know, they substituted other things. So there are countries that are ahead of us. We'll, we'll probably be there in five or ten years, even if we do nothing. The cash and legal transactions is very big for five and ten dollar transactions. But you get to fifteen hundred dollar transactions and a lot of data and surveys show that it's on the decline anyway. So you're the professor of of economics, not me. But I mean, there's so schlub that I am. I'm thinking, well, that's sort of weird to think about the idea that in a few years or or in a certain amount of time, say, let's say the 50 would go out of business in as much as there's obviously an up creep in what things cost generally. I would imagine that the $50 bill and maybe even the $100 bill would kind of become more relevant and more convenient uh, as as costs and prices go up. Well, that's a very good point. And But on the other hand, with current inflation levels, 
price level is only going to double every 35 years or even 50 years. So it's not going to change very fast. And the fact is that if you look now at what people want and demand, they're not using these bills in legal transactions. Of course, some of it washes back into the legal economy, perhaps through your used car uh, that transaction. I actually heard from a lot of used car dealers who complained about competitors paying for everything in cash and only taking cash and doing a lot of things under the table uh, to get a competitive advantage. So um, one of the people that we thought about having on this particular program is a guy who may or may not be known to you. He's a very popular talk show host named Dave Ramsey. And so he has this whole theory that, first of all, you should do more of your business in cash, not less. And and in particular, he thinks maybe some of the big transactions that you make in life, uh, you should make them in cash. Um, He he has a couple of arguments for it. One of them is the obvious one, that you can keep track more easily uh, of what's passing through your hands. There's a seductive and passive of quality uh, to using credit cards or, or even ATM cards. Um, and he also says, you know, when you go to buy a washer dryer with cash, you can often get the price of it down in a way that you couldn't otherwise. For some reason or other, there's maybe a psychological or economic advantage to having oh, cash. Oh, and a lot of them are avoiding taxes. So yeah. that's the whole IRS's point. So yes, uh, right now, cash is legal. By all means, use it. Uh, but of course, the reason that a lot of places will take a lower price is there is a lot of tax evasion going on and an awful lot of evidence on that all over the world. And as for keeping track of your expenses, I'm a little bit sympathetic to that, but uh, we're talking about doing this very slowly over time. You could perfectly well devise a smart card that had in bright, bold letters how much cash was left on it uh, that you know you can figure out perfectly well. All right. Now, um, I'm, I'll play devil's advocate here. This isn't necessarily my point of view, but it would be the point of view of some people. Some people would say, hey, butt out, Mr. Economist. Uh, you know, if I want to go shovel snow or uh, be a landscaper or something and get paid in cash and then go make major purchases in cash and derive certain benefits through that process that perhaps ultimately wind up in, in, in less money trickling into the federal revenue or state revenue pipeline. So what? They get plenty of money anyway. They get lots of money. They get some of my money in, in other ways that I, I can't avoid. So get out of my business. What's your uh, response to that? Well, they're taking advantage of the system uh, as it exists now. But other people are paying more taxes because they're paying less. Somebody who actually has the same income as them but has to report it all, is paying more taxes. And so it's, it's unfair. You're creating inequity. And it's big. It's not a little thing. So everyone else's taxes are higher because some people aren't paying. So sure, I'm not arguing that it should go into higher government spending or the government should waste the money, but it's, it's, it's inefficient and it's unfair. And it also tilts activities towards these things which avoid taxes. So let's talk about some of the other ways that cash gets used. It gets used um, in the way that uh, illegal immigrants are uh, hired and paid. So what's the net effect of that? And why does that militate against the idea of large sums of cash? Well, there's no question that the big magnet for illegal immigration in the United States is that employers can pay people in cash and off the books. And if employers had to report it, you wouldn't have this magnet for illegal immigration. Now, I want to be very careful that I favor 
having more immigration. I favor more legal immigration. And I certainly don't favor doing draconian things to the existing pool of illegal uh, immigrants that we let in under the system. But uh, looking over the long run, and again, I'm proposing doing this very slowly, uh, thinking about the fact that these people are being paid in cash and off the books is, ought to be a piece of any plan for trying to channel more immigration into legal immigration. And, you know, I certainly think would make more sense that, uh, a plan like that than just building a big wall. Um, obviously, and you've already alluded to this, but uh, for drug trafficking, uh, cash uh, is all important. But how different would either of these things be, the hiring and paying of, of illegal immigrants or drug trafficking, if instead of being all about the Benjamins, it was all about the Tubmans? Uh, in other words, if, we, if everything that's 100 now drops down to 520s, how does life get different? If it turns out it didn't get different, then you haven't really lost much because you know, it's just a, if it turns out just to be a minor inconvenience. But a lot of evidence shows that the storing, porting, hiding, hoarding of cash is a big deal, both for tax evasion uh, and drug users. Not if you're doing 10000 in business once or 50000 It's frankly not going to affect you. Even if you wanted to buy a, something for 100000 and the government not to know about it, you can carry a suitcase full of tens. It'll weigh 22 pounds. But if you're running a big wholesale business, uh, taking in hundreds of millions of dollars, like many drug trafficking organizations, or you're doing human trafficking, uh, really large-scale corruption, it makes a difference. Uh, there's a big difference between you know uh, how you hide it, how you store it. But I view this as a very light-handed approach. It could be that it won't have a big effect. But a lot of law enforcement officials, uh, Treasury officials, you know, people who looked at this have come to the conclusion it would. Uh, that's actually why we used to have a $1,000 bill. Mm -hmm. uh, it never was played the role the Hunter did, but uh, Nixon got rid of it at the end of the 60s. This is basically the argument he made, and a number of other countries have done the same thing with uh, large notes over the years. But, yeah, it's a very light-handed touch. You can do much more. But I, I think I would start here, uh, do this over a period of five to seven years, and see how it went. I think it would have a significant impact uh, on both crime and tax evasion. But by significant, I mean cut it five to ten percent. doesn't cost almost anything to make the change, so it would be a win. So let's say that we may wave the magic wand and we put this into effect and that hundreds and fifties are going to be on some kind of graduated basis uh, phased out. Do you have, uh, you know, even a, a kind of an eyeball estimate of how much money in total gets transferred out of the cash economy into a visible digital economy or whatever we're going to call the alternative to cash? Oh, I think a good, you know, so right now, we have about 8 to 10% of our country's outputs not reported. It's in the underground economy, which is largely a cash economy. And I, I would say a few percent of that would get moved over into the above-ground economy, into legal uh, tax-paying activity. I think it would be significant. Let me tell you, there are countries in Europe that are way further ahead on this, where they have really bans on large cash transactions. They have people uh, searching for if you're carrying around a lot of cash. I'm talking about Italy uh, as an example. 
uh, but you also see it in Spain, Greece, and and France. I, I can't tell you for sure how much good it would do, but uh, you know the experience, the estimates from law officials, not just in the U.S. but from around the world, are that it's very high on their list of changes they'd like to see. Right. We didn't mention India, I think, yet, but I mean, on the same time, we at the same time we were electing Donald Trump, uh, they were phasing out high denomination notes. Their idea of a high denomination note uh, is still pretty low. Uh, I guess the uh, uh, you know the other question that I have is. You know, criminals are kind of ingenious, right? They're very resourceful. And and so, obviously, yes, a lot of corruption payments we know may become in a brown paper bag full of cash. Uh, or, you know, people buying illegal weapons, people buying materials to carry out acts of terrorism, stuff like that. They're probably not using their Capital One cards uh, to do all that stuff. Um, I guess my question is, like, so you get rid of certain kinds of currencies and stuff like that. Um, does it worry you at all that, well, I mean, the criminals would be the first people to figure out the patch or the hack on that? There's a reason cash is king, and it's a a superior way of doing business for many criminal activities. Yes, you can use gold coins, you can use uncut diamonds, you can use Bitcoin, but uh, cash is really much the most liquid. It's the easiest to use. You can spend it anywhere. Uh, So it has a very low transactions cost. You're you're not going to end crime. They the first um, moder- the first standardized coinage was invented in Lydia in Western Turkey in the seventh century BC. They had crime before that, so they had crime before there was any form of cash. But the you're, it, it's clear, particularly in today's world, the criminal element tax evasion is the overwhelming use. I say outside of very small payments. And yeah, they're ingenious. They'll find other ways, but you're raising the cost. And you, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not claiming we'd get rid of it, but I think it, it would be helpful and it's worth a try. All right. Kenneth Rogoff, author of The Curse of Cash. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for, uh, for speaking to me. And that's our show today. Thanks to Josh Nalea and everybody else who uh, helped. Uh, I'm going to go out and have a late lunch. Does anybody have 50 bucks? Excuse me, I'm really hungry. I just need a few bucks. No, sorry, I don't have any cash. Oh, that's okay. I take credit. I've only got American Express. Ugh, every time.